Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You are listening to As a Woman, Episode 81, Male Infertility with Dr. Tolu Bakari. Listen as we discuss being a female in a male's profession, and we go into her thoughts on treatments for male infertility and what she wants all of you to know. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hey friends, welcome back. I'm so excited to have Tolu Bakari on. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Urology at UT Southwestern Medical Center, where she specializes in male infertility, men's health, and microsurgery. She completed her medical degree at Penn State College of Medicine and a residency in urology at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. She then received advanced training in male infertility, andrology, and men's health, through a fellowship at the University of Illinois College of Medicine. She's been a member of the UT Southwestern faculty since 2017, and I am thrilled to have her on the podcast today. All right. Hi, friends. I am so excited because I'm sitting here with Tolu. Tolu, hi. Hi, Natalie. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I am so excited to have you here for so many different reasons. But I just read your whole bio, but for everybody, you know, you're a male fertility specialist and I get asked about male fertility every single day, all through my DMs. And even though I deal with it, I usually deal with it on the spectrum of IVF and that's where we're going. So I am so excited to have you here. We're going to talk about your journey in medicine. We already said, before we started this, we were chatting and I called her one of the creme de la creme because she's a black (laughs) woman, male fertility specialist. She's like gone through all this exceptional training. You guys are going to love hearing your journey. So thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be here. I'm very excited to be here. Thank Thank you for having me. I can't wait to hear your story and to share it with everybody. So I'm going to start at the very beginning. So one of the top questions I always ask every woman who comes on the show is, why medicine? How did you go into this journey about wanting to be a doctor? Oh, man. So I think I've always been attracted to specialties that people tell me that I can't do for some reason. I love it. So when I was younger, I actually wanted to be a chemical engineer. I, that was my plan. I was like a really nerdy 13-year-old all set, I'm going to be a chemical engineer. And unfortunately, when I was 13, my oldest brother passed away from a medical error. Um, He had, I think, food poisoning or something went into the hospital. And then one thing led to another, I'm I'm kind of vague on the details because my parents kind of shielded us from it back then, you know, as you can imagine. Um, But something happened in the hospital and we were told it was uh, some kind of medical error that um, led to us passing at that time. And my 13 year old self decided at that point that I was going to be a doctor. (laughs) I mean, so you have a definitive moment in time where you were like, that's not going to happen to people on my watch. I'm going to go into medicine. I remember the day as if 
like it happened yesterday wow. that I, that I told myself I was going to go into medicine and I never looked back and I'm, I'm so glad I did. I mean, it, it was certainly not a fun event that put me on that path, but, um, you know, like I, I, I'm a firm believer in the fact that everything in life happens for a reason. And it, as much as it may hurt at that point, I try not to question it and just kind of go with the flow. And that's kind of been um, the story of my life in general. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's such a, I can't imagine going through something at that age, you know, that kind of would hit you like that. But certainly you could say that that terrible pain changed the whole trajectory of your life. And I always tell patients, I love when, I love when the world makes sense in a weird way, even if it means that your suffering has meaning later on. And so I think you're, you're such a living example of kind of going through that dark time, but like, look at where you are now. So where did you go to undergrad and what was it like being a pre-med? So it's actually pretty interesting. My, um, before, before I went to, before I started college, which was in, I started college at University of Texas in Arlington here um, in 2003. Uh, shortly before then, I actually also lost my sister to a car accident. <laughs> it's a very insane story. Oh my God. And, you know, I, I, I was just broken at that point. And I didn't even know if I, you know, I, I told myself and I promised my brother, you know, at that point in my head that I was going to do this. I was going to go to medical school. I was going to achieve all these things. And then that happened. And I was very, very thrown off. And I'm so grateful for my brother. I have an older brother that lives in New Jersey now. And he is probably one of the reasons that I'm here today because he would say, uh, and this is, this speaks to the importance of having people that really do speak life into you. Um, whether they're friends or family or whatever that whatever they may be, but my brother would literally send me random texts on days that I literally felt like I could not get out of bed or can do anything. He didn't even know I was having a bad day. He would yeah, just, he could send just me, feel I, it or something. He would literally just send me a text and be like, "Do you know how freaking amazing you are? You can get what you can do whatever you set your mind to." And I'm like, "How did he know I needed this?" And it was such a motivator for me. And so when I started college. Um, you know, I, I was able to like pick up, you know, myself through the motivation of my brother, certainly my parents were supportive as well, but my brother was my, it was my backbone. And so I fortunately was able to get through at U- University of Texas, um, in Arlington. And that's where I did undergrad before moving on to, um, Penn State, um, from, from medical school in Hershey, Pennsylvania. So I'm curious because, you know, we went to undergrad at different parts of the country and, mm-hmm. but, but it's similar times. I was an undergrad from yeah. 2000 to 04 and I was told all the time that I should do something different. I like my pre-med advisor <laughs> by other people. And I think it's just being a young woman. I don't know if it was the South and, you know, too, just like, oh, well, you're not going to be able to do these other things if you go be a doctor. And I was like, I'm going to be a doctor. I don't care the other thing. Right. <laughs> But to me, I've, I've always spoken how discouraging that is that the people who are supposed to advise you were trying mm-hmm. to like hold you back or put you into the box that they thought you would fit into better. And I don't know, you know, up in Arlington, was your experience similar at all? Did you have doubts oh. from people who were supposed to be mentoring or helping you? Oh God. Yes. I mean, I, so 
you know, I was on the, I was on the Dean's list. I was on the honors list. I was, I got this award called the highest honors award just for having like a perfect 4.0 GPA. And my advisor said, and my advisor said, are you sure you want to do that? It's really hard. And I was like, what do you You're mean? Like, it's I'm like, sure hard for breakfast. Like, I, I'm like, I don't understand. I would think that you would be pushing me along to achieve, to, you know, achieve success because, you know, I've certainly tried to prove myself in, in undergrad and I, I, I have no idea what you mean by, do I, am I sure I want to do that? But I, you know, I've also, I've also been very fortunate that I really, I have an internal motivator other than my brother. I don't need, I'm what I'm, I'm very lucky in that regard that I don't really need people to motivate me for me to do what it is that I set my mind to, which is kind of bizarre. Like for example, I don't need anyone to motivate me to work out. I get up at 5am every day to go to Orange Theory. Sometimes before the pandemic, I would get up at 4am to go to Orange Theory on my OR days for a 4.30 workout before I go to the OR. Commitment. you know, there's just some people that don't like for my, you know how people have love languages. Mine, my last one is words of affirmation. I do not. I need don't it need you. I, um, <laughs> it reminds me of, um, Tiffany Jones who introduced us will always yes. will joke about things. It's like, you just pour some fuel in my little red Corvette and watch <laughs> me drive off. Like, right. it's like here <laughs> by doubting me. Cause I don't need your affirmation. And in fact, it's almost like it fuels you in the other way, right? Like you hear this advisor and you're like, what are you ta- You're crazy. You have, you have underestimated me so much, right? You're like, watch me, right? Like watch me go to med school and watch me achieve all the other things I want to achieve. You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like there are definitely days of self-doubt. There's a lot of imposter syndrome that comes in play, especially at this point in our careers. Um, There's so much self-doubt that can creep in. Um, But I think I was fortunate that in the process of, you know, getting, of going to med school and through residency and things like that, that I just had that, I don't know, I don't know, call it my brother or the experiences that I've had as a kid, um, that it takes a lot to actually break you down when you've been through so much trauma you know? And so it was, it's, it's a lot easier for me to be like, you know what, what's the worst that can happen? Like I've literally had two siblings die, do your worst, you know? I I mean, you're like, right. Like if I fail at this, I'll do something different. What's the worst thing that's going to happen. Right. So smarty pants, you, I'm so proud of you went to Penn state. Cause that's like so easy to get into. Um, and tell me about, you know, your experience in med school. Were you one of the only minorities? Were there a lot of black women in your class? Like, what was that like? Um, my med school was interesting. Um, I think there was maybe 10 of us minorities, maybe 10 or 12, uh, amongst like a class of, probably 150 or so. Um, and it, I think majority of us were women, actually, which is, which is actually pretty cool. Um, I think there were maybe two or three guys that were black in my class, in the class above me, which we all kind of, you know, became friends over yeah. time, being spending four years together. Um, it, it, was, it was a pretty interesting setup. I mean, it was, we definitely had our um, struggles of, you know, trying to be seen, but I think it was encouraging that the the university seemed interested in you know cultivating this atmosphere where um the minority students were welcome and you know we were made to feel like 
you know, a part of the class and not really excluded from anything, which, which was great. I mean, not that I imagine any class would do that nowadays in 2020, but hey, you never know. No, I mean, I, I think it's something to be said though, because um, you know, trying to cultivate an atmosphere of, you know, equality is very different than just ignoring it or, you know, kind of not noticing things. So did you know from the get-go, like, hey, I'm going to go into urology. Is that how you <laughs> entered med school, kind of ready for urology? Was that oh, your plan? God, no, God, no. I had no idea what urology was. Like probably most other medical students, unless your dad is a urologist or your uncle was a urologist, yeah, you don't know. Are you seen a urologist? Urology is not is just not a specialty that people talk about. It's not a very well known specialty. So, like many other med students, I had no idea what urology was. My thought was maybe OBGYN, maybe emergency medicine. You know, those were the things that I was more familiar with. And so, and I did. I think I shadowed uh, OBGYN and I did some volunteer work in the ER. So I was like, yeah, this is totally cool. I'll do this. Um, but I knew, I knew I wasn't going to be a surgeon. <laughs> that is the one thing I told myself. I said, I am not going to be a surgeon. I don't care. <laughs> Surgeons are terrible people. They're so mean. I would never do a surgical specialty. And then in my second year of med school, I shadowed this, um, wonderful physician that I'm actually blanking. I think his name was Dr. Mahon. He was older. He was no longer operating. So he was mostly doing clinic stuff. And I was I was um, uh, assigned to him to learn how to do prostate exams because that was one of the things you kind of have to check off in yeah. <laughs> second year of med school. And in his clinic, he was a phenomenal teacher. I was like, wait, you were a surgeon and you're not a terrible person? This is interesting. And his clinic had so much variety. Like you saw men, and you know, of course you think about urologists, you think only prostate exams and erectile dysfunction. <laughs> and, and, but he saw men, he saw women, he saw kidney stones, he saw urethral injuries. He saw, and I was like, what is this wonderful specialty with such variety and surgery and medicine combined? And so I decided, unfortunately, I already set my schedule where I was going to do surgery as my first rotation and get it out of the way because I was like, surgeon is terrible. <laughs> like, get that out of the way. I was like, I don't want to do it, right? And, and then I was interested in urology. I was like, well, this is fascinating. So I got to do, I got to do a three-week elective on urology, and I fell hard. I fell in love with it. And I spent the rest of third year trying to find something that I liked as much as urology so that I could do the other thing so I don't have yeah. to be a surgeon. But no, nothing even came close. <laughs> this is something that's so interesting to me about medical training in general is so many people happen into their field based on a random encounter or a happenstance because medical training for people who aren't in medicine who are listening, your third year medical school so if you go to a traditional program, first two years are all book learning, second right. two years are clinical, but really that's all a hoax as far as choosing your field because you get one third year of all your core rotations and right. then you have to apply. And so then right. you're like going through this application, right. exactly. fourth year full of electives, you've already had to make right. a decision. Right. So it's crazy because urology is not one of the core. So the core things are surgery as you got mm -hmm. out of the way, OBGYN, pediatrics, internal medicine psychiatry, family yeah. medicine? And is yeah, that what family medicine. Yeah. I think, e well, I don't know if ER is um, even part of the core anymore. Yeah, so it's like it's an you may not, if you hadn't randomly gotten assigned to this surgeon's clinic, 
you, the, you wouldn't even have I thought. I would never be here. Never be here. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. It's so really funny is that I went to UTMB for medical school and they were trying to get over this concept of you don't see any clinical stuff until your third year. So they pair you into 
clinical experiences as like first and second years. Mm-hmm. And I got paired in the urology clinic. I'm like, why the hell am I here? It took me like one day to be like, this is not my future. <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this place, kidney stones everywhere. And everybody's like talking about their blood. I mean, it's funny because it just, you resonate with something. I mean, like my husband will make fun of me all the time. He's like, you talk about vaginas like all the time. Like right. most people don't want to go down that road. But it's just, it's, it's these happenstance little interactions. So it's really yeah. interesting that you got this little taste of it. And luckily yeah. it set you off onto this whole... Path, yeah. But you're all just really hard. You're all hard to get into. Yeah, and it's early match. We match in January. That's so medical school. (laughs) So you really have to like figure things out quickly for urology because you have to know what you're going to do by, I mean, pretty much because you have to do research, you have to have something on, you know, so that you can be ready to apply by you know, September or whenever the application is. And it's hard. So you, you had to do research to get into residency, right? Because it's competitive. You have to have have research. You have to have, I mean, some programs are less heavy on research than others, but honestly, looking at the applications nowadays, because I'm part of the application um, review committee for our, for our department, looking at the applications nowadays, man, students are getting competitive. They're not playing around. I'm talking like (laughs) several publications. Yeah. I get it. I get asked all the time for OBGYN is like, do I have to have research to match? And I don't like research or whatever somebody will say. And I was like, look, sometimes you may find you like something that you didn't think you did. So give it a chance. Mm-hmm. But two, more than anything, it shows dedication to a field. You exactly. are willing to spend your free time doing something related to exactly. your field because you're committed and understanding research and papers. I was like, I can't pound it into somebody's head is so important. And it takes years and years to be able to do it. So starting to do something, even if it's not like the world's biggest project, oh, it's a case report, whatever you did something. Right. And so do you have to, well, I don't know, but does it make you feel committed? Does it make you automatically, oh, look, she's so interested in urology because she did this project. I, I exactly. think it never hurts you to do it. It can possibly exactly. hurt you not to do it. Exactly. Right? It never hurts. It never hurts to do it. It could, I mean, honestly, I tell some people sometimes, like it doesn't even have to be in, in urology. Like if you, if you're late, you know, a late bloomer, so to speak, and you don't know that you want to do urology until halfway through your third year, which is technically too late at that point for, you know, matching quote unquote, as long as you have the, you have research, like you show that you're interested in research in any field at all. I think people are actually interested in that as well. They don't, it doesn't have to be just urology or OB or whatever else. So true, especially for a lot of, and we'll dive in, but you know, when you do a fellowship, a lot of fellowship, you know, you have to have, you've got to prove research. And I mean, like my fellowship was three years long, half of it research, half of it you know, clinical. And so the point is, is like when you're going to narrow down into a niche, you got to be able to understand the evidence and what applies. And so just to prove that you're a student of medicine, like you said, even if not in your field, it's in something, I'm giving up my time to try to be better and learn more and be evidence-based. That's always going to look good. Yeah. Can I just say how, like, whenever patients ask me about REIs, I'm like, listen, 
they are literally one of the smartest people that I know because they do like a four-year residency and then a three-year fellowship where they like work their butts off doing all of this research. I said some, I, honestly, Arias are probably some of the most published people that I know because they have to have a ton of research because it's so hard to get into. It's hard it's to get crazy. into. And I mean, you do have all this research time and like our field, our field changes all the time. So it's right. like, you really got to stay on top of things. It's really funny because- yeah. I'm in AHSM, so you know, um, it, okay, so it's like cutting out on me now. Um, and one time, Anita Patel, who is a pediatric critical care doctor, she's an academic, she was like mm-hmm. pub medding me, and she's like, Holy shit, you have a lot of research papers. And I'm like, <laughs> Yeah, girl, like that's that's what it takes. It doesn't matter if you don't keep doing it, like, but that's yeah, what it's like. I'm an REI, we're kind of badass. <laughs> Girl, I was in training for a long time. Don't doubt me. <laughs> it was a long time there. Um, so you, did you apply? And I know this is going to be a crazy year and I'm going to want to ask you some about it. But when you were going through, did you apply like to a ton of programs because it's so competitive, interview all over the place? Kind of what was your experience with application and for the match into urology? Yeah, so I did. Um, when I was, I think when I was applying, it was kind of known that you just apply to like 50 programs or something ridiculous like that. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I did that. And then my strategy at that time was to come back south. I really wanted to come back um, home-ish, but not quite home. Um, Dallas is home. My parents are in Arlington. Um, so I, I interviewed in Dallas. I didn't want to go to Houston because it's still muggy. And I was like, mm, I don't know about Cause Houston. it's Houston. Sorry. Houston friends. Right. Cause if Houston, I, <laughs> it's okay. Dallas and Houston have a router. I mean, Dallas so and Austin okay. right here. We can, rep, we can hate on Houston. <laughs> I can talk crap about Houston. <laughs> it's okay. Um, and then, um, I interviewed in Oklahoma. I interviewed in, in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I fell in love with Little Rock. It, it was, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful place to live um it it has its struggles (laughs) um being a black woman in Little Rock Arkansas was not easy uh but it was a beautiful place um I really enjoyed the people that I met there and I was and I was sold I was sold when I interviewed there so I really ranked them as my top choice when I was ranking um and I was lucky enough to actually be able to go there it was nice because I could drive home uh, on weekends. Uh, Those things like are nice- so important to be able to oh, get that support because uh, training's yes. so tough. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was also like, you know, I'd been away. I went to boarding school. That's a whole different story. And so, you know, I know it's a whole <laughs> different story. I went to boarding school. And so, I mean, there's so many layers to this individual. <laughs> I love it. And, and so I was just ready to be like close-ish to family um, with, but still, you know, maintaining my independence, but still close enough. Um, so I was able to live in Little Rock and be able to drive home and fly home if I wanted within a really short period of time. And so that was pretty nice. I enjoyed, I enjoyed being there for five years and it's a five-year residency program. Um, so I was there for, for five years before moving to Chicago for my fellowship. Okay. So you're there for five years. There are like, what, how many residents per year? Four or five or something small? No, two. Two. Most program, there's two most programs take two a year in urology. Oh, look at there, that. Well, our program at UT Southwestern is probably one of the larger ones. We take five. Okay. And so I, I was a OB resident at UT Southwestern. So that's like my, <laughs> I remember there were like five urology people going around and we would need them. But, yeah. Um, 
Okay. So two, wow. So hard to get in. You're so badass to get into your top choice. You're one of two. I'm going to, how many black women were in your residency program? In my residency program? You're looking at her. (laughs) I'm looking at her, right? (laughs) I I actually think at that time when I was there, I, when I started out for probably a couple of years, I was the only black person in the entire surgical department resident wise. There was one, um, one attending and for colorectal surgery that was black. And then my chairman actually, um, was a black man, which was fantastic and super motivating for me. Um, but resident wise, I was the only, only black person. (laughs) And then it was, it was pretty interesting. Okay. So I'm kind of talking about this because we mentioned this earlier that people weren't, rec- I wasn't recording yet, that in urology in general, there's like 10, maybe 14% women. Okay. So yes. just by existing as a woman, you're yes. already kind of in the very small club. Yes. Then you talked about black people in urology yes. and it's like, two percent okay yeah so you're like the ten percent of the two percent um and and even less and that's urology in general and you're a specialist because you specialize in male fertility yeah male infertility your experience has got to be so unique and i think one thing that i've heard and i've said i'm sure you feel similarly is like they can't be you if they can't see you you know little girls when they think about what all things could exist for them if they don't see themselves represented in that line of work doing that thing, sometimes right. you don't think that it's possible like, or somebody right. would have done it. Like right. how, um, how did you kind of decide to go on to fellowship? Because did you have mentors who were pushing you in that way? Yeah. Did you just like that aspect? Tell me about how that happened. So, so, so I, I've always thought that I wanted to do a fellowship. I didn't know what I knew. I wanted to proceed in academic medicine Mm -hmm. in one way or the other. I just didn't know what, what fellowships exist in urology. I don't even know. Yes. So we have several, we have urology, oncology, we have endo urology, um, which is basically like stones and things like that. Um, we have minimally invasive, um, we have pediatrics female urology, um, so the female pelvic reconstruction um, urologist. Um, we have uh, infertility, and I feel like I'm... Reconstruction, recon, recon. So lots um, of cool options. Oh, yeah, super cool. I mean, there's so many... Different, of course, infertility is the coolest of all, yeah. but there's so many different ways you could take this. Uh, the urology oncologists are you know, well-versed in treating kidney cancer, bladder cancer. We do really cool surgeries where we actually reconstruct a bladder from, you know, intestines for people that have bladder cancer. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty incredible field. I mean, it's, it's the most hidden gem in my opinion. I think, and I tell young medical students this because nobody ever said this to me when I was going through, they were talking about Mm -hmm. a lot about, do you want to do procedures or not do procedures? That was always like the big distinction. And people kind of made continuity of care seem like this bad thing. Like, do you want to do continuity of care (laughs) or not? Where, you know, continuity of care can just be for one problem or to see through it. But I think the biggest thing you have to decide is, do you want to know a little about a lot of things, or do you want to know a lot about a little narrow topic? Because if you want to do 
a felt like a fellowship, you know, you want to make sure if you like to know, like me, I, I know this about me now. I didn't know this at that time. Right. I want to be the expert on something. Right. I, I don't want to argue right. with you. I'm just going to say, boom, look, I'm the expert. Like that fits <laughs> me very well. But yes. I didn't get, I had really terrible mentorship and you may not know, I matched into emergency medicine because I got advice about like, it's more lifestyle friendly and blah, 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 oh, and you like procedures. And so I did an ER intern year before switching to OBGYN because what I, one thing I really need, realized fast is that it was not satisfying to me to one, not have follow through with patients, but two, not always have to ask the experts, but that's the role of an ER doctor. And you got to be really good yeah, at the same thing true. with primary that's care. True. Somebody has a problem that's a little here, you send them off. And that's kind right. of what the certain fields do. And so I knew leaving ER when I went into OB, I was like, I'm going to do a fellowship because I want to have this very narrow thing that I am the person who knows it all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I'm I'm resonating with what you're saying because I'm you're probably the same way. You're like, I knew I was gonna yes. do a fellowship. Like I wanted to have my thing. I want to own my niche. Yeah, a hundred percent. And so when I was actually in my second third year-ish, I had a patient that um was misdiagnosed. I think their daughter was misdiagnosed as having a congenital ill uh, genetic disease or something. Um found out later that it was some kind of lung mass or something, which was kind of bizarre, but he had a vasectomy because they were so scared to have another child. And then he came to us for help for reversing the vasectomy. And, you know, I was doing this at the VA at that time. And I thought, you know, we don't, so if male infertility specialists are so rare, there's probably like 500 of us in the whole country. In the DFW Metroplex, there's probably just three or four of us. So rare. Uh, to millions of people. So most residency programs don't have a fertility specialist. And so when we were going to do this surgery, I really felt, I mean, I was very, very down about it because I, I thought, man, you know, this guy already had the unfortunate luck of getting, you know, their daughter getting misdiagnosed. And to me, I wished I had someone with the expertise to absolutely know with confidence that this chance of success with this reversal was really, really good. Not to say my attendings weren't good. I mean, but they were most, the most, my attendings at the VA at that time were mostly generalists. generalists. Right? Yeah, that always. means they do a little bit of everything. Right, exactly. And even though, you know, they were really good surgeons, I still felt like I wish that I could put him in the hands of someone that would give him a really good outcome. And at that point I thought, you know, I may be interested in infertility. And so I really got lucky. I was able to get a, schol- a traveling scholarship to SSMR, which is one of the, um, the groups under in urology. And I, I was one of the traveling fellows for, I think, my, sec- my third year in residency. And I got to meet a bunch of really cool people. Dr. Joseph Akul is probably one of the people that motivated me to do this the most. Um, I saw women like Dolores Lamb. I don't know if you know yes. her, but she's like, Big, big in Dolores Lamb. She she is Dolores Lamb, right? The queen. Yes. Um, you know, seeing people like her being, you know, fertility. I mean, even though she doesn't really do direct patient care, but but she's a big, big mega person in the infertility world. And so seeing people like that, meeting um, Dr. Akul and 
um, some other people along the way that, you know, really helped, you know, cement the deal for me that infertility was it. And, you know, I interviewed with Dr. Niederberger and I just fell in love with him. I was like, you know, you're a great mentor. I want to train with you. And he was like, come on over. And, <laughs> and I matched and we went through another match. I was like, you, did you match? So we matched for fellowship too. And it's like, each place takes one person. It's really like beyond stressful because like yeah. you're yeah, one, yes, exactly. one, one spot. And it's like weird. Um, because you're interviewing with your peers, which is great. You would like see the same people at interviews right. which is awesome now <laughs> because they're really close friends. But it was like, wow, I'm competing against people who are freaking amazing. Fantastic. Phenomenal. And that's how I, I felt like when I kind of went through it, I realized like, holy cow, like how is, you know, a little bit of the imposter syndrome game. Like right. how am I sitting in the room with you right. guys? Like, you know people. what I mean? Like you always think you're going to be the cool one and then you get there and everybody's cool and you're like I'm not unique (laughs) like they're all cool and oh my god I remember when I was gonna get the match results I couldn't sleep I was because I ranked Dr. Niederberger's program number one and that's really where I wanted to go and I was like oh man I really hope I get it and so when I opened the email and I saw it I was like oh my goodness this is the best thing ever I I know Oh my God. I, it <laughs> takes me back. I remember like I was on nights and so I was like at home and I like set an alarm to get in front of the computer and like open the email like at 1201 <laughs> or whenever it came through because yeah. it was really I was one of the few applicants from Texas. Almost everybody was from like the Northeast or California. Oh, I wow. felt like they've been in all these researchy hubs and I had done a bunch of research too because you got to by this time. But it was just like such a crazy thing to like find that thing that really you want to do so bad, but feel like it's a little bit out of your control if it happens. Like you're trying to like line everything up. Right. Feeling of getting into it. I remember being like, my whole life is different now. Like, you know what I mean? Like. Exactly. And I think we only have like, I don't know, maybe 10 programs in the entire country or 13 that are in the match. There are some that are not in the match. I think. Larry Lipschultz, big program in Baylor is not in the match. Um, there's another one or two that are not in the match, but for the most part, I think there's maybe like 10 or 13 programs in the match. So it really, and most of them take one person. So it's like, so most people who are listening probably don't realize this about urologists. Okay. So you've got a sperm problem and you're getting referred to urology that like 99% of the time you don't have a, you know, reproductive urologist or a male fertility specialist in your town. And you're just seeing a general urologist. Not like that's a bad thing, but somebody with your level of expertise and training, that's an, that's a different fellowship. And so how can a lay person, you know, know who they're seeing? Like, what's the best thing to say? Oh, I need to see a urologist and I'm in the DFW area. Who can I figure out who did a fellowship? I would say the, probably the best way to, to look at it is to look at the doctor's bio and see if they're fellowship trained in male infertility um, or andrology is another way uh, that it's described, or they're called male reproductive specialists. Um, that would probably be the best way to do it. And you're right. I mean, urologists are, are good. However, I think it's certainly important that if you are seeking male infertility expertise, that you should find a fertility trained specialist. And here's why. There's a, there's a recent survey that was done that actually showed that 25% of general urologists still prescribe testosterone for fertility. No! Urologists. Oh, and no, there's a lot no, of family no. medicine people that do it. 
I can forgive family medicine physicians that prescribe testosterone for boosting yeah. fertility. Yeah, because you're learning 5,000 right, things. Right, right. Like, I mean, a family for practice person doing it, I, you know, I just need to figure out a way to outreach more to make sure people are aware of it. But you have 25% of urologists still 25, that's a core, that's huge. Okay, so 25. let's make the number one, well, <laughs> the number one takeaway from this podcast is you're phenomenal. The number two <laughs> is that, and this is actually huge, and I talk about this all the time to people, testosterone does not help fertility. And in fact, it is the number one worst thing you can do yeah. If you want to get pregnant and you can get, okay. So apparently from 25% of urologists, you may get the wrong advice. Yeah. From general doctors from men's health clinics. We see yeah. it all the time. Oh, I had low libido. So I've been on T for two years and in my brain, I'm like, oh, you got no sperm right now. Right. You know, That's like, oh, it hurts. How, and you know, one of the first things that I try to do when I see those patients is because you know, for me, it's also about building trust. And I tell my patients all the time, look, my goal is to get you a baby, the most effective, cheapest, and quickest way we can do it. So we need to stop testosterone is number one. And there's some patients that are like, oh, you know, they can don't, I, often they don't want to come up because they add HCG or add something. And I'm like, no, this is literally like you pushing and pulling at the same time. We need to stop one so that we can move forward. And, and I think it's, it's a matter of an, helping people really understand the pathology and the process of how this works. And I break, I try to break it down in terms of, you know, describing the hormones and the, yeah, do it, do it here real quick. Give me, give us your little spiel. Cause I, we break down hormones all the time. So yeah. if you're trying to figure out why tea is bad, here is the little spiel yeah. about what testosterone, where it comes from and the hormone kind of chain. So here's what typically happens in your body when you inject testosterone. There's a, there's, a, there's a gland in your brain called the pituitary gland. And that gland releases two key hormones called LH and FSH, okay? LH goes to the testicle to stimulate the cells. And I'm not going to go into the name of the cells because I don't want to confuse people. They're called the lytic cells if you're interested. I was like, um, girl, we go into menstrual cycle in detail. You tell right? me. Oh, great. To stimulate the production of testosterone. FSH, which is a follicle-stimulating hormone, stimulates the production of sperm in the testicle as well. When your body detects a large amount of testosterone in the bloodstream, it thinks that the brain assumes that there's a lot of testosterone that's given a negative feedback to the brain. So it shuts down the production of those two key hormones, LH and FSH. Those hormones in, in people that are on testosterone are usually suppressed to basically undetectable levels um, in those people. So when you suppress LH and FSH, what happens then is that your testicle doesn't get the stimulation of LH to make intratesticular testosterone, so testosterone from inside the testicle. And then it also FSH is also suppressed, so it's also not getting the stimulation to make sperm. And you need testosterone to make sperm because testosterone is a gas for making um, sperm. But you also don't have FSH, which is the motivating factor, the thing that stimulates um, Sertoli cells to, you know, turn into sperm. So when you, so that is basically how it works. So when you, when you get testosterone in your body, your brain's like, uh oh, too much testosterone. We're doing good as far as testosterone is concerned. Shut down LH and FSH. No more sperm. No more intratesticular testosterone, which is also why the testicle atrophies, which means it gets smaller, and it gets smaller because there's no stimulation for the cells. It's not doing anything. 
to produce um, testosterone, hormones, testosterone, and, um, and, and sperm as well. So if you try to add something else, so let's say someone says, okay, let's add HCG to the regimen. Sure, it may, it may help boost the production of testosterone in your testicle a little bit and maybe maintain some of your testicular size. But you cannot 100% depend on that because if your FSH levels are still suppressed, then you still would not stimulate the production of sperm. Okay, I love all this so much. So hold on. <laughs> Everybody listen to this because this, the human body is so fascinating. So just like FSH and LH are released in women and they go and they stimulate mm-hmm. granulosa cells and fecal cells, they are stimulating cells in men that are just called different things that do different jobs. Yeah. And just like if you're a woman taking birth control pills, which is exogenous estrogen, it is telling your brain, hey, maybe there's an egg making estrogen. We got enough. We're going to stop sending out FSH and LH. Therefore, the ovaries do not grow an egg and do not make their own estrogen. It is exactly the same as when men take testosterone. And the bigger issue here that people don't really think about is that in women, you have this supply of eggs that you're born with that we run out of that we get really annoyed by most of the time. However, shutting down which one ovulates doesn't impact anything next month or long term because the next month a new group comes out and eggs are used. They're constantly in that vault, not impacted by what else is happening. For sperm though, sperm are generated all the time new and they've got a life cycle. So if you stop the production, it's not like you can stop testosterone today and have sperm tomorrow. No, no. It actually, so I I tell my patients, it takes about 80 to 120 days or so for each life cycle of, of sperm. So Whenever I actually start treating patients, I'll typically wait about four months before I even check in semen analysis. Certainly in some people, um, it can recover within the first two to three months or so, but it certainly does not happen by the next day. Yeah. And and even if we're doing like IVF and we need teeny amounts of sperm, it's going to take some time to get the production up. So if you wanted to be pregnant last year and you, your guy's been taking tea (laughs) and now you're here and we're going to try to reverse the process. One, we don't know what the baseline is very often, right? Because maybe there were naturally low sperm counts or low testosterone levels or something happening to get you on this process to begin with. So you, and this is one thing I tell patients all the time, like a young couple who's got lots of ovarian reserve and has time. This is a great experiment, right? Like, Hey, let's stop the tea. Let's give it six months, you know, and see where we are because Mm -hmm. we just need to see what our new baseline is. But if you're 39 and running out of eggs, (laughs) right? Like you may, yeah, that's where like we, you've now, like we're kind of in a hole. That's where we're stressed out. (laughs) That's why we freak out because one is like, well, we could wait some time for the sperm to come back. We obviously got to get some sperm, but what if it, what if your baseline count is low anyway, and now you're doing IVF six months. Anyways, it's a very tough place to be. And so there are other situations. Like I've had, I've had patients where, you know, their spouse gets diagnosed with some form of cancer. And they want to, tr- and they don't have kids yet. And they're like, oh crap, we need to, we need to try to like retrieve eggs from the woman before she starts chemo. And they were like, well, how about we just do an embryo and we can freeze the embryo, you know, and, and we try to test them, but he was, he's a sperming because it wasn't testosterone. And then we have to start rushing because she needs to start chemo. And I'm like, literally there's nothing you can do to rush this process. 
and unfortunate the, the unfortunate part about this is also we also don't know how long you can be on testosterone before the effects become permanent. Permanent. Uh, I've had I've a patient. Had, I've had a guy, I've had patients that, you know, they'll be on testosterone for 10 years, maybe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the other part about it is not only getting testosterone back, but the, the sperm back, but the way it takes to get the sperm back. I mean, you, I've had to dig into HMG, HCG, which HMG is not a cheap drug. No, no, we use so, that stuff. Right. I, I mean, I've, I've had to give patients HMG if they're just not, their, their pituitary gland is so suppressed that they're not even responding to Clomid, which is a medicine that typically stimulates production of LH and FSH from the pituitary gland, but they're not responding to the medicine. And so you have to basically give them <laughs> FSH LH, and those hormones can be expensive. It's the so, hormones we do for IVF. So they're super yeah. expensive, mm-hmm. you know, and it can take months of using. Oh, yes. Yes. It's, it's, it's crazy. And yeah, I've had I had a um a professional athlete who was on testosterone that, mm-hmm. you know, two years after stopping, even with HCG and HMG, like had nothing, you know. And I think that the truth here is that we often think because something is prescribed to us or given to us right. that it can't hurt us. Right. And um that's maybe why you need to see somebody trained and where you're trying to go or just be really cautious about understanding, you know, when this athlete was started on this, he was not thinking about, right. you know, and that's often the story, but, um, it's definitely, if you're interested in your fertility journey and your partner is on T or being told to be on T, no, 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 no. Get a new no. doctor to be helping you here because <laughs> that's like, <laughs> that is like, Oh, it kind of like, we all cringe inside. I really implore. Oh, God, yes. That that's probably 20- one of my biggest pet peeves. <laughs> Ooh, 25% of urologists that really like that one, like cuts deep. That, that data definitely shook me. I was very surprised by that. I didn't expect that. So since we're talking a little bit about male infertility, I get asked all the time, um, you know, I always, I have a big interest in like nutrition and factors like that. And so things that you can do to make sperm better and worse, whether it comes to lifestyle factors, supplements, diet, what kind of advice do you give to a couple who wants to conceive and they're trying to have like the healthiest sperm possible? Um, so, you know, one of the main things that I tell my couples is whatever is good for your, uh, for your body is good for your sperm. That's the one thing you should always know. I tell them, if you don't smoke, don't start. Um, fortunately in men, um, little amounts of alcohol use is not something that has been found to significantly impact, um, sperm counts, which is good news for the man, but I always tell them just to be nice to your wife, since she may not be able to drink, maybe you should just kind of stop it. So she's not like giving you daggers while you're drinking your beer. (laughs) Um, but in general, anything, so there's a, there's a few misconceptions out there that I would say about sperm. One is heat, the the thought about heat and whether it affects sperm count or not. Um, for you to typically, there's a lot of data that has kind of been questioning this particular topic. And, and while there's no real good consensus on it, there's evidence that anything that increases your testicular temperature by over three degrees is certainly bad for sperm. Um, there's a question about whether intermittent exposure versus consistent exposure matters. Um, so for example, people that sit in hot tubs for 20 minutes or longer, bad, don't do that. If you're trying, if you're bad. actively trying to conceive, 
don't sit in a hot tub. Um, I tell my patients, avoid saunas if you can. Saunas, because basically you're sitting in a really, really hot room for a yeah. long the, time. The scrotum's outside the body for a reason. Right. The, right. <laughs> the scr- yeah, I tell my, you know what I tell my patients? I tell them, I'm like, you know, it's not like God just had a sense of humor. There was a reason why it's outside the body. <laughs> it's, not just for, it's not just for people to make fun of it. It's also because it needs to be cooler than the rest of your core temperature. <laughs> Um, so, so that, that's two things. Um, um, shower, I don't care about nobody sitting in the shower when like hot heat, hot enough water to like hit the scrotum for a long period of time. Um, laptop in the lap that has kind of been discredited because it's mostly on the lap and not really giving too much heat to the test to the scrotum and the testicle itself, but avoid it while trying to conceive is, is the general consensus. The biggest one that has kind of been, um, uh, some data say, yay, some data say no is underwear. Um, and whether boxes or briefs. And I get asked I, this every day in DMs. I, Go. Honestly, the answer is whatever makes you comfortable. It does not matter. If boxes or briefs were a thing, we would be almost extinct now because there's a lot of men out there wearing boxer briefs and they're perfectly fine. It is going to be hard for, for a brief to increase your testicular temperature by over three degrees. <laughs> so um, you're fine. Either way, if you feel like wearing loose underwear, wear it. If you feel like wearing tight, snug underwear, wear it. It doesn't really matter is the answer. I get questions about bicycle. Cycling, yeah, I was about to ask. Um, biking, not so much. The main concern that I would have about biking as a urologist is the compression of the vessels in the pelvic in the perineal area. And so that can maybe cause future erectile dysfunction is the thought about that, but not necessarily as far as the testicles are concerned. Just minimize trauma to it as much as you can. If you're going to bike, maybe make sure you wear something fitted so your testicles aren't kind of bouncing around and getting yeah. traumatized. I always say like the difference in like a Peloton bike for 60 minutes versus a three hour bike ride outside. Like there's a big, you know, I'm a professional cyclist. I like my Peloton bike. Like those are different categories of both like heat, compression, bounciness and all that stuff. Right. If you're going to ride a bicycle bike, if you're doing a long distance biking, what I recommend is maybe every 30, 45 minutes or so, just kind of stand up and uh, things uh, air out a little bit and then air out. Let them breathe a little bit and then you can sit back down and continue. But just setting a reminder for yourself to kind of just get up and, and let things cool down and then sit back and then continue your ride is what I typically will recommend. As far as foods are concerned, again, anything that's healthy for your body is healthy, healthy for your sperm. Yeah. Um, just you know what that is. <laughs> right like fruits well, uh, veggies like people know what the good things veggies, are and what the bad things the are <laughs> all the good stuff anything with antioxidants obviously are all is always good um i get questioned about caffeine no caffeine doesn't really do anything for sperm by the time it gets to the to the, the sperm it's already metabolized and broken down pretty well so um typically not much of an effect on your sperm what about marijuana oh that's a good one so interestingly um, the, the thought of the, the traditional thought has always been to stop marijuana use during the, during fertility, um, during the time of, you know, trying to conceive, um, because marijuana can affect the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. And, uh, it, get, it kind of looks like LH in the body and potentially disrupts testosterone production and things like that. However, there's some new data that actually shows that 
um, that was presented at our meeting, actually the last meeting we were able to physically go to, um, that marijuana actually in some men improved testosterone, uh, the levels of testosterone. So I would I would put that in the in the in the group of still controversial, but yeah. I, but to err on the side of caution, I still recommend to my patients to stop marijuana use while trying to conceive. Yes, and there's some data. It's not the most robust showing that male smokers of marijuana, their female partners have an increased risk of early miscarriage, you know? So, I mean, I don't know. Interesting, right? Like it's kind of hard to think about that one, but also that female use of marijuana could be associated with autism. So female use of marijuana while pregnant could be associated with autism. So I think- I feel like I saw that recently. The autism thing is very new. So it's probably still making the news. Um, I think both of these things are like, hey, we don't, and I tell people this all the time, you know, when something's, you know, it's legal now in some places, but when something's like illegal, it is hard to study, you know, and so you can't get even good observational data on it. And so use with caution. Also, it's probably better for you both just not to use it when you're trying to get pregnant, because if you're working hard, or especially if you have infertility and you see us, those type of outcomes are not what we're shooting for. You know, we want the highest chance of a live birth, healthy baby. Um, So, but I've seen the mixed data on like sometimes sperm swim slower and faster and sometimes T is higher and lower. So I think it's a variable response to hormones. It really is. It's it's very unclear. And so... I, you know, the, when I, where I trained, the Dr. Niederberger certainly told all his patients to stop it, even though the data is unclear. So, you know, I just take it from my mentor and we still have unclear data, but, you know, we're going to continue the trend of hold off while trying, especially if it has other negative effects, you know, on the female partner and the rates of miscarriages and things like that. You certainly should, if, if it's something that we don't know much about that may be bad, it's probably better to stop it. Yeah. I love that. I think all the time in our field, you know, we start talking about infertility, um, you start, you have to live on the fringe of evidence very often because you don't always have the perfect study. It's very right. hard to do like RCTs and infertility population for various things. Yeah. And so you have to look at the data and sometimes make the most conservative decision. Like what, exactly. what's the risk here? What's the benefit? Is the benefit really worth the risk? Probably not. Now every <laughs> couple is different, right? And you may have chronic pain or maybe you can't do this or that. And I think it's right. a, every person's different. You need personalized care, but yeah. those are conversations when we talk about things like this, that you need to be having with your fertility oh, doctor or your urologist to kind of understand what it might mean for you. And I think that's yeah. one of the most important things. What about supplements? Do you have any supplements that you kind of randomly put men on? You know, yeah. I, I mean, maybe you do, maybe it's just a men's multivitamin as you said, antioxidants earlier. So I don't know if you kind yeah. of have some. So the biggest one that I actually typically recommend is coenzyme Q10. And that does have some evidence. My favorite too for women. I mean, I tell every, I mean, I tell all my men 400 milligrams coenzyme Q10 daily more than enough because it does have there, there was a uh, study that came out showing that it improved motility um, in men. And so it's it's my favorite one to recommend. There's a lot of other ones out there that have kind of been evaluated. And there's this big study actually that looked through a bunch of like- um, proved that none of them mattered. Out there. And basically they were all like, mm, we don't know. <laughs> and so, you know, I tell my patients, I would go for the cheapest thing I can get, which is pure coenzyme Q10. It's usually no more than 10 bucks over the counter. 
um, and you just do 400 milligrams and it can actually improve motility. The other thing is in some patients that have mild pyospermia, which is basically white blood cells in the semen, um, coenzyme Q10 is actually a really good treatment for that if it's mild pyospermia. So I, and I'll, I would usually treat them with coenzyme Q10 for about a month and then recheck semen analysis. And usually the, the white blood cells are gone because it's usually just inflammatory reaction from the prostate or something like that. And that'll usually kind of take care of the inflammation that they have. So um, that's definitely my favorite, favorite one to use. Okay, let's talk for a moment about vasectomies. So let's say you had a vasectomy and then life didn't go as planned and now you've got a new partner who would like to have children and you're at the juncture of should I get a vasectomy reversal or should I do IVF? Do you count, how do you, and of course IVF isn't just straightforward IVF, it is like take some sperm out of your testes IVF. So it's IVF plus a little fun little biopsy situation. How do you counsel people about the success of vasectomy reversals and all of that? Okay, so when I see a couple, there's a couple of things that I look at. Unfortunately, in our lifetimes, the woman's age is a huge factor, right? It's like on our text, it's, it's always on our exams. It's like, I'm, I'm nodding yes over here vigorously. Like, yes. It's like, the woman is 39 years old. What is, what is your answer for this? And you're like, and before it used to be adoption, but now it's like, you know, Tessie and IVF and things like that, fortunately. Hallelujah. Um, but so when I see a couple, depending on the age group that they belong in, a certain, it kind of, all makes taper, taper my counseling for that. But I typically give all my couples the same option and then I give them my recommendation, right? So if I see a couple, let's say he's, I don't know, 40 and she's 32 uh, and they want to do a reversal, there, uh, there are two factors that are important to consider when deciding if they're going to do a reversal. One is how long the vasectomy has been. That's actually probably the most impo- important one. Any vasectomy that has been greater than 15 years, the chances of, of reconstruction is certainly lower than any one less than 15 years. Um, and, fe- and then the number, the other factor is fellowship, fellowship trained hands, a good microsurgeon that can actually pr- perform microsurgery. Because the standard of care now for vasectomy reversals should be micro re, microsurgery, which is basically doing the reversal under a large surgical microscope rather than using loops or or um, doing it without any magnification at all. Um, so um, the success rate in you know a vasectomy that's not does not been over fifteen years, five years, or ten years or so can be upwards of ninety five to ninety eight percent. Um, that's of course, return of, of sperm to the ejaculate. So one sperm in the ejaculate and you get right. that success rate, right? No, but right. I think that's important, right? Yeah, because I, and I, I'm totally honest about that with my patients. I said, look, the, but that doesn't transfer into a pregnancy because pregnancy rates after a reversal, is actually more like what 50 to 60% or so, if not even a little bit lower, depending on the age of the woman. Right. And so if, if someone has a vasectomy that's over 15 years old and their spouse is 38 years old, um, while I, I counsel them about vasectomy reversal and I let them know, but I also inform them that the odds of them conceiving just by the fact that their wife is older alone 
is lower. I mean, I'm talking 20% chance of them actually being able to like conceive. I mean, if I'm oh, sure yeah. it's about 7% per month, if everything is, if everything was perfect. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, you know, so I tell them that the recommendation in, if, if you're quote unquote, um, more mature couple is what I like to say, not older, um, is, you know, Tessie with IVF. Um, if you're, I've certainly had some couples that are in that category and more and hell bent on doing a reversal. And, you know, my, my job is to give them as much counseling as possible and then, you know, let them make the ultimate decision really about what they want. But, um, 15 years, 15 years or more, the chances of, of, of reversal, um, certainly decreases. And at that point, usually they have like scarring of the epididymis. And so you have to do something called a vasoepididymostomy where you're, um, you're like putting back two parts that don't really matter. Yeah, right? And so the chances of that not working is much higher. And so it gets a little more, um, complicated and certainly the success rates of the pregnancy rates drops even more, um, when it's longer, longer than 15 years. So, uh, my discussion with them is usually look, the optimal patient for a reversal is someone that's done 15 years and certainly a, a relatively younger couple. Um, but if they, if they insist on doing it, then I'm happy to still help them out and take care of them. But, you know, with, with, with the knowledge that, the chances of this being effective is lower and they may still need IVF. Now, there's sometimes that I will also offer a sperm extraction at the same time as the vasectomy. So that in case... As a backup plan. That's smart. I like that plan. So you don't get poked on twice there. I love, you know, on my end of things, I will sometimes see couples come to me and it's like once vasectomy reversal, but once female evaluation first. So essentially what that means is we're like, are your tubes open? Are you running out of eggs? Because, you know, even if you're 32, but you're running out of eggs or your tubes are blocked, like what, that's not going to help you get to your goal. So I always do it like you guys are in control of, you know, making the decisions that fit your long-term goals. But what we, as your doctors want to make sure is that you don't kind of walk blindly one direction, ignoring the obvious over here. So it's like, if you had chlamydia and you're a woman and you've got big hydrocell pinks, but you never knew you could have the most skilled, trained, microsurgical hands do the best vas reversal ever. And it doesn't matter if sperm returns because you're not going to get pregnant, right? right? And so I think that to me, if you're looking at it and what I tell people who kind of even come in at the beginning, I'm like, it is actually, it's much easier for me if we do an evaluation, it's good. You go get your vasectomy reversal and you get pregnant naturally. Like that's the easiest for me. Exactly. But what's the hardest for me is if you get your vasectomy reversal and you spend that money and you try and no sperm comes back and now you need IVF, but you're in a hole and you feel like the medical community hasn't been honest with you, right? So that's not where we want to be. If you have to do IVF, that sucks. Nobody wants to do IVF. But better to know now than spend the money or, or think, have expectations unrealistic with reality. I wonder, 100% agree with that. And I, I tell patients all, look, we need to, again, the, the cheapest, quickest way we can get you a baby is what we're trying to do. So it's not what it's, it's really what works for your lifestyle. And if, and I've, you know, I've had some couples say, I don't care. I, I'll pay the vasectomy universal and I'll pay for IVF if I need it. And I'm like, you know what? 
that's fine if that's or what the you driver's call. seat, right? Like I'm in the passenger seat giving right. some ideas of which which road is the highway. It's the fastest, right. easiest way to get there. But exactly. I'm just yeah. here to control you and make sure that you make the right decision. And that's it. So I mean, as long as you're honest with patients and you let them know what the reality is, I think most of them appreciate that. But am I correct in saying that much like IVF is generally not covered by insurance, that vasectomy reversals are similarly not covered by insurance? Yeah. Absolutely. You are very correct in saying that. So, so if we look at, you know, I always say for a, a woman or a couple, you've got like four resources. You've got your time, which is your most valuable. You've got your money, which is the one we're most aware of. And then you have what you can physically take and what you can emotionally take. And once you get to the bottom of any of the pots, you're done. Yeah. So you really have to think about what it means for you going down one road or another. And I love... Yeah. What I think is the most important is that we all work together to educate these patients together. And it's not like I'm hearing message A from this person and message B from this person. I'm sure you feel the same way. Yeah, oh, absolutely. We, especially when you get into these small subspecialty fields, we really want to say, hey, we're all giving you the same advice. Like you take right. what you want to take. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of letting people, like I've had people come to me with, oh, I got referred by an REI because I want to get a Tessie. And I'm like, sounds good. That's that's what you want. I'm not going to try You're to even- like, Boom, I can do that. Like, there's no point in, I'm not going to try to convince you to do a reversal. No, like you, you already know what you want out of your life. And to me, it makes sense because that way your wife is also 38. So it makes sense to not even waste your time doing that because the chances she's going to need IVF anyways, is pretty darn good. And so- Let's just move on to that. And he's like, oh, is there any other advice? You, no, no. I think the Tessie is a really good idea for you guys as a couple. I mean, I agree. That's going to work for y'all. I, or, you know, that's you know, kind of in your game plan. Yeah. I think most of them appreciate when you're at least honest with them and give them, you know, not just like advice on this, but also advice on the best way financially for them to make, make their dreams happen, you know, so... So I don't have tons of time left, but I want to kind of touch on the fact that you are um, an, an academic. So you're at UT Southwestern, which is a fabulous mm-hmm. place to be. And yes. so what does that to people who maybe are more familiar with like the private practice side of medicine because they follow me or have heard me or other mm-hmm. private practice docs talk, what is it like? Like, what does your kind of day-to-day look like in academics? What made you choose that? Kind of give us a little spiel about what it looks like for you. Um, so academic medicine is really, I mean, it's really cool. I, I really enjoy it because I get to teach residents and I get to interact with residents and, um, help shape the future generation. So, 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 so to, to, I, I guess kind of, um, and so that makes it really exciting. I think the, um, I like the idea of having, um, a, a group of people that I work with in urology that, are, that I can kind of bounce ideas off. Uh, like we all kind of work, you know, you know, with each other. We're kind of slightly codependent on each other in a way, not in a negative way, I guess. In a good but, way. But in a good way where like the oncologist can basically send their patients over to me to discuss fertility um, preservation. And if I work up a, a patient that I see and he some, somehow has a renal mass, I can refer him to my oncology colleague. Um, I can, you know, make sure we have a network, you know, and, and I really enjoy that. You know, if I'm in the OR and I, and I have a, maybe I'm doing a general urology case and I'm stuck or something, it's nice to be able to phone a friend and be like, hey, come into the OR and look at this. Um, 
um, which is something that I found very valuable, especially in the beginning of my career, um, because coming out and, you know, you're like, you've spent what, six years in residency and fellowship, basically having an attending watching over you. And then suddenly they're like, all right, go out there. You're done. You're good to go. And you're like, no, 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 wait, what, <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> And then you do your first few cases and you're like, but there's no, am I, am I okay? Like there's nobody to tell me you did a good job or you're okay and everything is fine. And so you're really just, it's nice to have the confidence that if something does go wrong and you're unsure of something, there's always people that you can call. So I enjoy that aspect of it. Um, the other part of academic medicine that's cool is, you know, there's always opportunity to be able to collaborate with other departments, uh, you know, for research and things like that. You know, I'm, I'm certainly doing that at UT Southwestern, which um, is something that I'm, I'm really enjoying and I find, find really valuable. Um, certainly with academic medicine comes the, the, the pain of promotions and things like that, which, which I guess are good and negative in a way. Uh, I think it takes about what, anywhere from five to seven years for like, uh, for you to be promoted from assistant professor to associate professor and probably another like seven or so years to get promoted from associate professor to, uh, professor. That's crazy. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> so, but you know, a lot of us that do it do it more for, uh, I think, the love of teaching residents and probably the love of being in a in a in a situation where you have other people to kind of, you know, you have your own network and you have kind of your own people in a way that you can make sure you rely on. In my department, anyways, and I find my. My department is certainly um, very, we're very collaborative. We work really well together. Most people like each other, thank God. <laughs> and so I've really enjoyed that part of being at UT Southwestern. And, and in picking UT Southwestern, I mean, come on, it's UT Southwestern. Yeah, it's a great place. Yeah. I mean, so your kind of job, you know, you have clinic time, you have OR time, you do research, you do teaching, you do virtual interviews for Apple, right? I mean, like, so there's, there's a lot of things there. So there's a lot of variety in what yeah. you're, you're doing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I absolutely do. And then, you know, the other part of it is because I, even though I'm an infertility specialist, I get to do some general urology. I go to a county hospital here, uh, which is, you know, makes your practice more, you know, unique and variety. And it's really fun. Hey, Parkland. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I take caller Parkland. Um, uh, so we, you know, we do, we get to do a little bit of everything and interactive residents at those different places. So like, for example, today was a clinic day for me. Um, tomorrow is a clinic day. Actually this week is very heavy clinic for me. Like on Friday, for example, I did, um, uh, a micro a vasectomy reversal with a resident. Um, we did epididymectomy. I mean, you know, it's always nice to have like a variety of cases like that, that you can do. And your days are a little bit, I guess, more structured in academics. I, I'm sure they are in private practice too, but you kind of have the structure of like my clinic day, my OR day, my yeah. on and on and on in academics. And sometimes um, you can get like an administrative day um, if that's something that you negotiated for or whatever included in your contract for research, some people do that. There are different pathways to in most academic practice. You can be a clinical educator, um, where, uh, most of your focus is, uh, clinical duties and, um, 
educator, like we're educating residents and sometimes medical students. Um, and then you also do research in your personal time. But there's also like a physician scientist track where you're basically like expected to have like a lot of heavy <laughs> publishing of like research and things like that to be able to get promoted. And so it depends. I mean, I think most people that are MD, PhD probably love that track better, but yeah. most MD you know, <laughs> but if you're in it for the teaching, you may err right. on that clinical educator right. track. Right. So, I mean, it can just, it can, it can vary. I'm pretty sure it's probably different from institution to institution. Um, but I know that's what we have here. And, um, and, and I, I, I certainly enjoy, enjoy the variety of day to day. And then taking call, obviously, is really cool, too. Um, when we take call, we, I mean, there's a bunch of, I think there's like 16 faculty members or so. So we're able to like spread it out pretty well. well um, so we're not burnt out. So it's pretty great. You, you get to share the kind of burden of some of those things with other oh, colleagues, which is oh, cool. yeah, It's pretty nice. Yeah. So I want to end with just a couple pieces of advice you have for, for people in general. So for a young black woman who's interested in medicine, what piece of advice do you have for her? Oh man. Um, you know, the way I think about this is to think about my, my, um, 18 year old self or 20 year old self. And what would I say to her? Um, I, I would say to any little black girl out there or not so little black girl out there that that's wondering if they can do this. And, you know, the one thing I want you to know is you are the only one in charge of your destiny. Um, you are the driver, you are the passenger, you are the backseat person, you are everything. And let no one ever tell you otherwise. Um, the amount of power that you have in your, within you um, is phenomenal. And, you know, you are the only one that can pull that out of you and never, ever, ever, ever let someone's opinion of you, um, someone's thought of, of, of your hair, um, someone's thought of your of your aggressive looking face or someone's thought of your aggressive looking stance or someone's thought of of just just you being a human being is aggressive deter you from keeping true to who you are and never ever stop being you because that's one of the things that i i had to learn the hard way in residency um and it's important to always remember who you are you are a darn good person you have worked really, really hard to be where you are. You deserve every single ounce of success that comes your way. Um, and let no one ever take that away from you. That's it. Going to cry. That's so, I mean, that's so powerful. It's so beautiful. I'm just going to like uh, play it even to my, to my little white daughter. Cause I think to any little girl, you know, <laughs> any, little girl, any little girl being told you can't do something or maybe you are, you don't fit what the expectation is. Yes. Um, you know, that you need to be able to believe in yes. yourself first if you want other people to believe in you, right? You know, every time I go to those infertility meetings, I see myself and I don't look like anybody else in the audience. And it is so important to know that you belong. I don't care what anybody else looks like. You belong and you deserve a seat at the table. And you should always strive to get that seat. And people like me will do everything in their power to make sure that you get a seat at that table in the future. Because I will make sure that we get that seat. So that's it. <laughs> I love you. Oh my 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I always joke with Tiff. I'm like, this is our table. Come sit at it. We're making yeah. space for everybody. Like the whole mentality. I mean, I experienced some, I don't know if you did, even of, let's say, just being a woman in medicine, that yeah. the women, the generation above me sometimes were not as willing to help me get there as they should be. Not universally. I had a few great female mentors who helped pave the Isn't way. That interesting? I felt like there was some roadblock almost with the scarcity mentality. Like I can't let you in because then my seat right. is kind of in jeopardy. Whereas that's the mentality I think is so wrong. I'm like, dude, yeah. come sit next to me, right? We need to, we need more of us here yes. to, um, to all be here. And so I think that's, I have one of my first podcast episode was called Mean Girl and Recovery because in a weird way, medicine teaches you this scarcity mm. mentality. Like you fight mm. for everything along the way. Yeah. And the truth is because you're competing against these phenomenal people and you're competing against this and there's only so many. But the truth is when you're at the end of it, we can all amplify and support each other. And mentors who believe in you and can help you, you know, that's so important. It's hard to do. But you've got to find people who can be on your team because you need that, right? Absolutely. I mean, I have, you know, one of the, one of the things that I feel very, very lucky about is that I've also had, you know, some other black female, like one of one of my good friends, actually, we rotated together when we were third, um, fourth year medical students at the same place. And I think people thought we were going to compete with each other. But we actually, we, we didn't know each other. We met there, she was a black girl and we became friends. And I've just never had that desire to tear someone else down. Like, I mean, if you're, if you're doing well, I'm happy for you. And I, my goal is just like you said, like for us to bring other people along, never ever to take away from them. I think it's just, it's unfortunate that that has been, and I agree with you. I think there are some women that have done that in the past. And I'm hoping that our generation and the generation coming after us are realizing that, you know, the way to be is to pull everybody in and let's all just grow together. There's room for all of us. There, there really is. There's room for all of us and there's no need at all to tear anybody down. Okay, Tulu, the next time we have an ASRM that actually meets in person, I can't wait to see you myself. We are going to have... <laughs> so much fun. You were talking about conferences earlier. And like the first time I went to ASRM as a resident, I was like, oh my gosh, here are all these like nerdy people who also <laughs> really like this stuff too. But like the imposter syndrome and then not feeling like you fit in, it was like so on extreme and not at all to the level you've experienced, I'm sure. But I've been told certain things about not belonging or, you know, like you shouldn't be on social media and you shouldn't wear lipstick or heel. I mean, <laughs> whatever. I'm like, my ability to wear high heels and fit into my field, they are like totally unrelated. Like I can do my job and wear heels, right? So, but that's just <laughs> old medicine. We're trying to kick that to the curb and get rid of it. Oh, yes. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll, show, we'll show all them. Watch me. Pour gas. That's right. Watch us. <laughs> Watch us. Um, the last thing is I'm, I have a lot of people who listen who struggle with infertility and, you know, being told that there's male infertility is often a really hard thing because women love to take a lot of the blame and they have oh, a, you, do you know what I mean? And so yeah, I've yeah. I've had couples who like don't even want to get the male partner tested. They don't even want to check a semen analysis. I'm sure it's me and I'm the problem. And how do you help these people or what advice do you have for the couple that's kind of in that position of just saying that like infertility happens and it's not like anybody's yeah. fault? You know, what do you kind yeah. of say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I tell my patients, no, we don't assign fault in my clinic. I said, I, I tell them and I, especially, I think sometimes 
the certainly the women struggles with you know accepting all the blame but i also think for a lot of guys what people don't realize is how um how it, it breaks them down in a way that i think men don't express as well and fortunately for me probably because of, this is what i do i'm able to i'm able to see past their facade right and so i tell them i say if you were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes today or if you were diagnosed with some kind of crazy cancer, would you blame yourself for that? No. There's literally nothing you could have done to prevent this from happening. So I want you to understand, the first thing I want you to get through your head right now is this is not your fault. I don't care what it is. I don't care what happened. I don't care what you did. I don't care. This is not your fault. The second thing I tell them is, look, this is stressful as heck. I know it. You know it. There's data out there that shows the stress of infertility is just as bad as the stress of being diagnosed with cancer. The only difference is that people are in your face when you're infertile. They're like, are you doing it this way? You put your legs up. Are you doing it that way? We're asked for cancer. The story is that people withdraw because they don't know what to say to you. I say, you need to treat this with the same level of TLC as a diagnosis of, of like cancer, because it is so important that you take your, I encourage my patients to just go on date nights and just not think about it. I'm like, you're 30 something, 20 something. I say, act like you just met and just have fun and just remember what it was that you fell in love with. And don't let the stress of this take you over. I refer my patients routinely to counseling Same. because I, it is so important for them to have, be able to communicate because I think sometimes they don't know how to communicate the feelings and it translates as anger, especially men. They, they're really, especially if they feel like something is their fault, they'll stifle it down and they just will, you know, either disconnect or whatever. It's funny that I know this about my patients, but clearly it doesn't apply in my personal life. I have no knowledge about men in real life. <laughs> you got these infertile men down right now. <laughs> But give me a patient and I'm, I'm a therapist taller, but in personal life, none of this applies, right? But no, I tell them, I said, look, this is not your fault. There's nothing you could have done to prevent this. And you just need to take care of yourself. And it is, I'm like, go home, pull out a glass of wine, sit over a nice table, make some steak and just talk and just really, really accept what has happened and figure out a way to get past it. And I think most people... Once they realize that, honestly, this is a diagnosis like anything else. It has, a, it has an ICD code. Like it's a diagnosis. So don't think you did something or this is somehow your fault or you're broken. Just like, you know, I feel like a lot of people feel um, I'm, I'm broken. I'm less of a man and things like that. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Sperm does not make you a man. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that's such an important, you know, part of this is that I, the insurance companies could help us out by making it a disease covered as well. And I think that's kind of the extra burden often our patients have to carry as it comes at a financial price tag, no matter what the meds are expensive, the surgery right. is expensive, IVF is expensive. And so Absolutely. it's an extra layer of stress onto an already stressful situation. And you probably feel very similarly to me, as I always say, nobody wants to come see me. You know, like this isn't right. a, I'm not a 
I'm not your pediatrician. It's not a well child visit. Like nobody like is real excited to go talk to the fertility doctor because it means you have a problem that you didn't want to have. And it means that, you know, your life's pathway, it's taking you a little longer to get where you want to be. So it's always a hard visit. That doesn't mean that it can't be better. You know, I think having a care team that you trust, having doctors you believe in and can communicate with, those things really make the journey better. But number one, like you said, have being on the same team as your spouse is the most important thing. You guys have to have the same goals and be honest and open. And if there's discrepancies, like that's okay. You need to like be able to hash them out and figure out what is our goal and what do we want to get? Because that's how you get through it is together. And sometimes that does require counseling and other support and telling people or not telling people, you know, it's up to you guys, but you guys need to be the united front for what that means for you. I I tell, I do tell couples that I say, you know, this is your choice and whether you want to discuss this with anyone or not, you really don't have to. And it's nobody's business, really. It's literally between you two and me and your female fertility specialist. And we will figure it out. And, you know, sometimes I also see patients that have different religious affiliations. Like, you know, if they're Catholic and they're, you know, not into doing IVF and things like that. And again, I tell them, I'm like, look, this is a personal decision. Again, it is between you, me, and your female fertility specialist. Yeah. to announce anything you decide to anybody. I love that you mentioned that because I tell people the same thing. Like, I'm not here to judge you, whatever you do or don't feel comfortable with. But number one, you don't get you don't get to exclude something without learning about it. And I think that's what you owe yourself is to say, well, I've been told this, or this is what my parents say, or my religion says, that's great. And I will support you, but you can't discredit this thing over here without knowing what it means. Because I've often had people learn more about, we'll use IVF, for example. Oh, well, you could do this or only fertilize so many or only do this. And maybe then it overcomes the barrier that you guys personally had. So number one is, I guess the number three message for the podcast for this episode, (laughs) number one, Tolu's phenomenal. Number two, no testosterone. Number three is that you deserve to understand what's going on and all of your options. And what you choose to do is between you and your partner. But you can't just choose something or not choose something without understanding what it is and how it could benefit you. Right. Exactly. Well said. (laughs) Oh my God. We could talk forever, but I'm going to wrap it up. I want you to kind of tell everybody where they can find you on social media and in practice if they want to come see you as a patient and give us that spiel. So I am on Instagram and I always have to look it up because I'm so terrible. <laughs> My own Instagram name handle. Uh, <laughs> I it's I am Dr. B and that's I A M D R dot B E E. Okay. I am Dr. B is my, is my Instagram handle. I am not on um, Facebook. I am on Twitter. Um, and my name on Twitter, I believe it's just, to, it's at Tolu B-A-K-A-R. So at T-O-L-U-B-A-K-A-R. I love and that you're looking up your own handles right now. It is like, it is like making me smile <laughs> ear to ear over here. <laughs> like, clearly I'm not the social media queen, but I'm working on it. <laughs> um, and if you go on um, UT Southwestern, if you type in UT Southwestern Neurology, um, I'm on the website there. You can actually schedule appointments um, online with me as well. Um, if you want to see me uh, for any of your fertility, male fertility issues, um, certainly feel free to um, 
message me on Instagram or things like that if you have any other questions and um, I'll do my best to get to them as soon as I can. Ooh, girl just opened up the floodgates. Here we go. No, um, thank you so much for taking time talking. I've loved this conversation and we're going to have to do it again. We'll dive into some of those male topics even a little bit deeper yeah, next time. Absolutely. I'd love to. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed talking to Tulu. I'm definitely going to have to have her back on here. So if you have male fertility questions, I think it would be great to do a Q&A. So drop them on Instagram under the post for today, and we can get to them in a follow-up podcast. Thank you guys so much. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD or on TikTok at Natalie Crawford MD. The YouTube channel's got some great videos, Natalie Crawford MD. And I can't thank you enough. Have a good one.